0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black whose books on the period include Waterloo and the forthcoming The French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, Strategies for a World War, talks to the critics, Deputy Editor Graham Stewart, about why and how Europe was engulfed in wars with France between 1792 and 1815. Professor Jeremy Black, um, particularly perhaps in Britain, often when we refer to the Napoleonic Wars, we're really thinking of the succession of stop-start conflicts that went on uh, between France, Britain, and many other European nations from the 1790s right through to to 1815. There's a difference, obviously, between what we call the French Revolutionary Wars and the various uh, wars that followed, various coalitions um, allying against France. Can you perhaps unpick briefly the different phases of the French Revolutionary
1: and the Napoleonic Wars. Yes, uh, the French Revolutionary Wars began in 1792 uh, with essentially Prussia Austria against France, uh, broadened out in 1793 with a broader coalition against France, including Britain, Spain and the Dutch. And then, as you correctly say, went through a lot of, different iterations. For example, Prussia left the First Coalition in 1795, as did Spain. But whereas Prussia then remained neutral, Spain, for example, the following year joined in on the French side. So In terms of the opponents of France, there are a series of coalition wars. In terms of France, one would usually distinguish between the French Revolutionary Wars, uh, which ended from this point of view in 1799, with the Napoleon coming to power, Uh, he seizes power in late 99, and you would usually call them the Napoleonic Wars from then on, um, a series of wars that themselves were not continuous because in 1802, 1803, between the Treaty of Amiens with Britain in 1802 and the resumption of war between the two powers in 1803, there was briefly a period of no conflict War was then continuous with at least one power, Britain, until Napoleon was overthrown in 1814. And with his return in 1815, you have the last of the Napoleonic Wars.
0: Good. Well, that's that's very clear just to set out the, the chronology of conflict. Uh, one point which um, I would like to ponder is... Did the French Revolution create a a fundamentally new ideological raison d'etre for war, or do you see continuities with previous 18th century European conflicts?
1: Well, this is a very interesting question, and one indeed in which in a number of books I have uh, engaged. First of all, in terms of ideology, I argued in a book on Europe. from 1550 to 1800 um, and indeed in a a more specific work that there was in a sense a recurrence of a previous ideological period of struggle namely that of the reformation and the counter-reformation and the point about underlining that is to suggest a rhythmic quality or at least a recurrence of themes as opposed to those people that try and find some abrupt um, entry into modernism and I I think one can take that further if you argue that much of the opposition to the French Revolution uh, derived at least in part from religious uh, commitment, as indeed had happened obviously with the wars of the Reformation, and indeed if you could present the French Re- Re- uh, Revolution itself as having a quasi-religious uh, uh, or ideologically committed of that type uh, millenarian um. Uh, character. Now, in terms of your second question, uh, which is, in effect, is there a new type of war here? The answer, no. A number of uh, academics have tried to argue that. I'm afraid their works simply reflect a lack of knowledge of pre-revolutionary French warfare. Um, The idea that there was, in some way, a limited warfare uh, prior to 1792 uh, is mistaken. Um, the idea that um, the French revolutionary forces were a, a as it were, paradigm shift uh, towards a uh, a new intensity or effectiveness of warfare is also mistaken. And as you will know from my works on the period, I argue very clearly that what actually emerges from the French Revolution in Napoleonic uh, period. Is the resilience and adaptability of ancient regime warfare, and more particularly um, at sea in the case of Britain and on land in the case of Russia? I mean, you know, the the people who sort of try and argue for a um, a new age of warfare never satisfactorily explain why the French were defeated Mm,
0: mm. in in the early phases. So the the period uh, up to seventeen ninety nine, but before Napoleon really takes charge. Um, is it really a conflict, a grudge between Paris and Vienna, with other allies like Prussia brought in, or is that too simplistic?
1: Well, I mean, any in any uniform account of a conflict which has a multiplicity of elements could always be regarded as simplistic. I mean, there is always um, a difficulty of summarising what is a great variety. Of goals and um, and means. I mean, for example, uh, uh, Austrian intentions do not explain uh, British policy. Um, So no, I wouldn't say that that is the only theme. And I would also draw attention to different drives in Austrian policy, uh, different priorities. Should Austria be more concerned about um, its relationship, often complex and often tense, with both Russia and Prussia, and more particularly in the age of the second and third coalitions of Poland? And is that a more serious challenge? And there are been a number of good books on Austrian foreign policy in this period. Um, and I think it's fair to say, for example, uh, for those who read English, there's a, a book by Karl Reuter. Uh, Baron Tujo, who's one of the uh, leading Austrian ministers of the 1790s, and it's very much drawing the attention to the tensions in Austrian policymaking, and you won't be surprised to hear, and here you can look at works by people like Michael Duffy or uh, the late Piers Macasey uh, that there are similar in other powers. Pal- uh, in their case, they uh, focused uh, more particularly on uh, on Britain. And um, when
0: we we look at this this earlier phase, I mean, wh- wh- why is it the French aren't defeated? They have the, this coalition against them, um, particularly in the period before we'll come to the quality of Napoleon's generalship in a bit. But what, before that phase, what what to what do we attribute the French ability to hold out against all comers?
1: Well, I wouldn't say they weren't defeated. I would say they weren't crushed. I mean, Gunther Rottenberg, in his study of the uh, Austrian army in the 1790s, argued that the Austrians won as many battles as the French did, and French attempts to sustain a presence east of the Rhine are thwarted on a number of occasions. Um, So I think one's got to be a a bit more cautious there. And it's it's also worth pointing out that in the War of the Second Coalition, um, uh, at the end of the 1790s, the French are put under enormous pressure. After all, Napoleon fails um, in Egypt, the French don't do terribly well in Italy, Switzerland, and Germany. Um, so I think one's got to be cautious here. There, there, and There is a difference between um, not being crushed and um, not being necessarily successful.
0: Mm. Uh, perhaps you could uh, remind um, many listeners what Napoleon was really doing in Egypt. What, what, what was the purpose of that expedition?
1: Um, well, I think you would be fair to say that a number of French commentators of the period would have been quite sceptical as to what the purpose of that expedition was. Um, you you are entitled to ask. Uh, as you know, I've written on a number of books on, on this period, and uh, I'm afraid to say... Um, I would uh, tend to argue that um, Napoleon's basic concerns was rather similar to those of Julius Caesar in invading England, or what we would later call England, um, a desire to maintain control of an army, a determination to uh, accrue prestige, um, a vainglorious uh, tendency, which, of course, led him to consider himself, uh, this is Napoleon, as a kind of modern-day Alexander of the Great. Um, in terms of vague ideas he enunciated of um hitting Britain's position in India, that was just folly in terms of the potential um, of a presence in Egypt. And of course, he actually um, helped to um gravely weaken France, both in terms of the major destruction of the French Mediterranean fleet at the battle. Uh, of the Nile, the Battle of Abukir Bay by Horatio Lord Nelson, and also, of course, by taking an army to Egypt and then not being able to bring it back. Um, so, in many senses, uh, this was crass folly.
0: Yeah. Uh, we, we often see Napoleon's promotion, or the promotion of Napoleon, is um, envisaged sometimes as a, a sign of, you know, the revolution opening. France's armed forces out to talent. Is that overstated? What was the the way in which the army operated fundamentally different after the revolution to during the ASEAN regime?
1: Well that again is an interesting question. I mean first of all talent was uh, obviously compromised by political factors. You could be as talented as you liked and of any social background as you liked but if you failed to tow both the combination of the political line and the political factionalism, changing political factionalism and the revolution, you could be out. And as you will know, a number of generals and admirals uh A large number went into exile, a number were executed, a number were imprisoned. Uh, The revolution devoured its own, a process that continued under Napoleon. Um, If you mean, are its social politics different? Yes, I think it's clear that under the Ancien Regime, um, the uh, social connections that were significant were different to the social connections or political connections that were significant in the revolutionary period. But I think the idea that that therefore meant uh, an openness to talent is laughable. It's rather like saying that because the social composition of the Soviet army was different to that of the Romanov army, therefore it was a sort of, you know, uh, uh, one that was, uh, again, open to talent. I mean, that would have been laughable to to generals who were shot under Stalin. Mm -hmm.
0: And, well, as we come... Uh, to the period after 1799. I I want to ask about the role of Napoleon and his marshals, because whatever our views of of Napoleon as a general is, I mean, he's surrounded by a number of marshals whose name, even if you're not French, you you can still remember now, even if you're not a specialist on the period, some very significant um, uh, generals uh, and, and marshals. To what extent was Napoleon... Responsible for identifying these talents, or were they coming up through the ranks anyway? And it's not a matter of seeing Napoleon as the the source of all preferment and judgment in these matters.
1: Well, I wouldn't. I, I have to tell you, I would. I'm. I don't go as strongly as you do towards a, um, a logistic view of the of the French army in that period. Um, and I would say that, as I've just argued, that um, some of the most talented French commanders, mocco for example, the victor, victor at Hohenlinden, um, you know, his career is destroyed um, by the political situation. Napoleon is, without a doubt, jealous of him. And he ends up, as you probably know, um, fighting for and being... Uh, being killed as a result for France's opponents. Um, so, no, I, I'd be a little wary about this. I think that there is in the Napoleonic regime a kind of gimcrack new aristocracy rather similar to that that you get under the Third Reich.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Britain and its role. I mean, do you see British involvement as a, a war of choice or? really were British fundamental issues of sovereignty uh, and its own autonomy um, severely compromised by Paris and, and for which, therefore, British interests were almost as strong as Prussian or Austrian interests.
1: Well, Britain goes to war in early 1793 essentially over the independence of the United Provinces, the Netherlands. Uh, Clearly, the ideological background, concern about a Republican regime which is about to execute its king, um, is a significant factor. But it needs to be said that um, earlier in uh, in 1792, In the summer and spring of 1792, the government of William Pitt the Younger had very much emphasized that it would not get involved in the French Revolutionary War. It had very much, as it were, argued down what was seen as the somewhat hysterical arguments by uh, Edmund Burke um so i would argue that um that uh, there was no inevitability about uh, British presence, just as it's worth bearing in mind that in 1791, Britain had nearly gone to war with Russia in the Ochakov crisis. In 1790, nearly gone to war with Spain in the Newt Sound crisis. and 1787, nearly gone to war with the French in the Dutch crisis. And in each case, circumstances and contingencies had ensured that that did not happen. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the process by which uh, those who wished to avoid war on both sides were um, unable to define and pursue a process of conciliation in the winter of 92 to 93 um is, is significant. Um, I wouldn't say it's inevitable, but I think it's significant. There were immediate issues at stake um, which the French found that they could and the French political system much more divided than the British one at that point, that the French found that they could not or would not compromise over. And given that the United Province was Britain's major ally, I think that was a crucial a crucial development.
0: Mm -hmm. We're often um, led to believe that one of Britain's major roles was really as the banker for the various anti-French coalitions, Um, and of course, fighting very seriously at sea, fighting very seriously in uh, the Peninsula Wars, um, and then obviously in the 100 days. But for large periods, is actually the role of um, financial supplier uh, Britain's primary contribution.
1: Um, I think it's an important contribution, but I would actually say that, um, yeah, I think it's, I would say an important contribution, but I would say not the only contribution. I mean, the very fact that Britain is the world's leading naval power is very important in terms of the options available to um to france um it in, it ensures that britain can maintain a presence in the mediterranean it limits france's ability to use the oceans themselves i mean france and uh, once it's allied to spain and once it's overcome the dutch have a formidable naval power projection so that is also significant
0: So uh, that brings us to to the subject of of the Royal Navy. Uh, Sometimes we we look at things from the perspective of the two world wars in the 20th century and Britain needing to import foods and uh, raw materials to keep the country as an island going. Um, Was that true to the same extent in uh, the first years of of the 19th century or was the British economy much more self-efficient, therefore much less dependent on needing the Royal Navy to secure merchant supplies to come in?
1: Oh, um, the while as yet there hadn't been the very large population growth you see in the 19th and early 20th century, nevertheless, Britain already was in a situation that it was dependent on food imports. That was important. And its economy was a trading economy. Um, and on top of that... Um, The Navy was required to provide the security of the British Isles, Ireland as well as the other parts of Britain, the United Kingdom, uh, from the prospect of invasion. So I would say the Navy is very, very important and in relative terms, uh, more significant than, shall we say, in World War uh, one or two because in world war two you also have the air dimension and in world war one of course there is a, a larger british commitment to land warfare on the european continent
0: mm. was napoleon really serious about invading britain do you think you know the the, the barges being uh, assembled around boulogne what, was that a was that a feint or, or was he was it for real
1: No, no, no. That was for real. And at the time when he was assembling those forces, he wasn't at war uh, with Austria, um, or still less Prussia, um, or Russia. And therefore, Britain was his major goal. I mean, I think it's worth bringing out that the French Revolution is prior to Napoleon. Uh, seizing power, the French revolutionaries had themselves uh, both attempted invasions of Ireland and on a much smaller scale that actually landed a force in Pembrokeshire. So um, this wasn't new uh, with Napoleon, but the force he deploys near Boulogne, an extensive force, um, is very much intended for an invasion of Britain. And he is strongly interested in that as a proposition. And in many senses. the War of the Third Coalition is initially, from the French point of view, a knockout war against Britain. It's subsequently, because of factors that Napoleon uh, has only a limited control over, very limited control over, swells into a far larger war Um, one that, in fact, involves more powers against him uh, than had been involved in the War of the Second Coalition when Prussia had been neutral, or the First Coalition when Russia had been neutral.
0: Mm. So um, in Britain, we see the Battle of Trafalgar as a a battle of liberation, which which frees Britain from the um, likelihood of imminent invasion. Is that how Napoleon would have interpreted Trafalgar?
1: Not quite. I mean, the key, the the fleet, the French-Spanish fleet that leaves Cadiz in uh, 1805 is not, in fact, seeking to invade uh, uh, Britain. By then, because of Austria coming into the war, French policy has changed. Napoleon has shelved his plan to invade Britain. The Grand Armée has marched east into southern Germany. Uh, on a campaign that's to lead via the victory at Ulm to victory at Austerlitz and the knocking out of Austria. And the invasion fleet, in fact, is heading, the Frank, Franco-Spanish invasion fleet is, in fact, heading for Naples. But um, the practicality is that this is the main strike fleet of the alliance um against Britain, and although its immediate intention is not to invade uh, Britain, uh, its eventual intention was certainly in that
0: direction. Mm-hmm. So let's turn our gaze back to um, the, the European continent. Um, we are talking a moment ago about the British financing of the coalitions. How, was, how did Napoleon finance his own war machine?
1: Um, well, to a considerable extent, by expropriation, um, to a considerable extent, and the French revolutionaries did the same, conquest fed conquest. I've recently brought out a history of logistics, which is uh, deliberately intended as a different account to that, uh, the standard account, the Martin van Kreefeld account. And I'm much more wary of the kind of modernizing approach to logistics. I think the the process of of, as it were, extortion, expropriation and looting remains very important quite late in history. Um, in some parts of the world, it's still important. And um, if you're thinking of the French, I mean, considerable amount of their military resources comes from, including of manpower, not as well as supplies, comes from areas they've conquered um, and overawed that are either absorbed into, metro, into the new French state, which is much expanded under first the revolutionaries and then napoleon or under sort of pliant uh allies um so i think in many senses this is a um uh you know napoleon in many senses um despite the presentation of him as a uh, a modern figure is in many senses uh, rather uh in the long tradition of, of warlords.
0: We were talking earlier about um, Napoleon and his role uh, with appointing marshals and also um, to what extent um, promotion in the French army was driven by ideology as much or more than um, talent. Um, I, I wonder the, the Bourbonist French, the people at all levels of society who are fundamentally still loyal to um, the France of the Ancien Régime, what their attitude really was whilst these wars were going on, did they find themselves drawn into the, um, the, the, the notion of Le Patrie and Napoleon and, uh, and as nevertheless a, a, a glorious figure who was reasserting French power? Or was there always uh, a very significant, um, almost in Napoleon's eyes, like a fifth column of French people who were actively subverting rather than just lying low?
1: I think both uh, elements can be found. I mean, first of all, Napoleon, um, and, you know, it hadn't begun with Napoleon. The directory government pulls back from many of the excesses associated with Jacobin and the terror. Um, But with Napoleon, the process is taken further in in that direction. Um, You know, there's the reintroduction of slavery, there's the conciliation with the Catholic Church, um, albeit one which is very much under Napoleon's thumb. Um, There is a degree of um, creation of a new imperial aristocracy in which favoured members of the old system can get a role. Um, But I think it's fair to say that a fair number of Bourbon figures, including obviously um, the Bourbon claimant to the throne, uh, and his heir, um, are abroad. And I think that is a significant fact. And so Napoleon is never the legitimist uh, figure. There are always many French who don't don't uh, see him in that light. I mean, he desperately tries to legitimate himself in the European terms by getting rid of his first wife and marrying the... Um, into the first, the Russian he wants to marry into doesn't succeed there. So, marrying into the Hab- Austrian Habsburg imperial line. Ironically, with Napoleon, of course, there is both a rejection of him from legitimist Bourbons, but there is also a rejection of him from Republicans. Napoleon is the man that has destroyed the revolution, uh, not least by crowning himself emperor. And, of course, as you probably know, there are Republican conspiracies against him so i think I think napoleon's um uh support is quite narrow uh, when things go wrong um there is nobody really. Um, to stand for him in 1814. And in 1815, once he's been defeated at Waterloo, the whole thing falls to pieces. Um, And again, the comparison with uh, some of the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century is instructive.
0: Was there a, a limit to Napoleon's ambitions?
1: No um and there was a fundamental lack of reality or what our american cousins would call situational awareness i think there was a lack of situational awareness in all sorts of respects and i think he is strategically extraordinarily naive i mean you know there is a lot of a a lot of effort to praise napoleon's generalship But um, I would argue, I've um, got a book forthcoming called The French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, Strategies for a World War. I would argue that however operationally successful he could be, strategically, he makes repeated uh, repeated mistakes.
0: Mm. So would you see him as better, uh, in soldiering terms, better as a battlefield tactician than as a... Um, a geopolitical or, at any rate, continental strategist.
1: Yes, I think that's a very fair uh, assessment.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's um, talk a little bit about one of his greatest strategic errors, the invasion of Russia. Um, Was it necessary? Why why did he do it?
1: Uh, It wasn't necessary. He did it because Tsar Alexander is not going in his direction as far as uh policy is concerned and napoleon uh, like hitler in fact subsequently finds it very very difficult to uh to cope with people um who don't do uh, don't do what he wants and in fact what this does is helps to take him into conflict just as with hitler with america in 1941 into conflicts which weren't actually uh, inevitable or or necessary i mean russia is not happy with france's attempt oppose the continental system the, uh economic blockade of britain uh which the which napoleon had enunciated um in 1806 uh, he's very dissatisfied about that and to napoleon um that is a a serious breach um uh the russians distrust napoleon over over the future of Poland, um, but the practicality is that um, it's Napoleon's insistence on obedience and his treatment of allies as servants that is the real problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so um, is it really, uh, is, is it fair to say that Napoleon that just didn't know when to stop because ultimately his power rested on military glory and so if he stopped pursuing military glory, he ceased to have legitimacy for, for his own regime?
1: Well, that's uh, one way of looking at it, but he didn't need to engage in that war. Alexander I did not wish to fight him. And it's worth bearing in mind, Alexander was already engaged in war with the Turks, war with the Turks from 1806 to 1812, which was a a, a serious war. Um, So Alexander I did not wish to fight Napoleon. Um, Napoleon did not need to engage in that war to maintain his gloire. Um, Britain, he was engaged in war with. Uh, The war with Britain could be contained on land in the peninsula as long as Napoleon was able to reinforce his forces there. Um, they, there was no threat of conflict with Austria or Prussia in 1812. Austria and Prussia, in fact, uh, only come in again against him uh, because the Russian conflict has has you know gone wrong. So no, I think um, it, it was a major failure on Napoleon's part that comes from his psychological inability to cope with uh, people who won't do what he wants.
0: Mm. H- how good were the um major uh, commanders on the on the um the anti french side who, who who would you assess were very effective uh, and which were the duds
1: oh well i think um i think um prince charles was very good on for the austrian side i think suvorov for the uh the uh, the russians was an excellent general i think wellington is uh, an excellent general. I think that um, the opponents of France have some good generals, uh, and in, obviously in the British case, excellent admirals. I think there are obviously difficulties for the anti French uh, side in, as it were, becoming a side. I mean, because there are disparate uh, goals, both in long term and in short term, between. Uh, the opponents of France, uh, between Austria and Russia, between Austria and Prussia, uh, between Britain and Austria, between Britain and Russia. Um, uh, uh, All of those are, I think, very significant. Um, And it shows how appallingly incompetent uh, Napoleon is that he actually is able to overcome on behalf of his opponent the divisions between the latter.
0: After the retreat from Moscow, are we really looking uh, at the French war machine with a broken back? Uh, I mean, there's the, the the Battle of Leipzig and the the, the various uh, defensive wars, um, getting closer to to Paris. Um, you Napoleon fighting these rearguard actions. Is it is he staving off the inevitable by then, or? Um, should we look at these as a series of tactical decisions, which could have gone could have gone either way uh, if they played out differently?
1: Well, that's very interesting. I mean, the first thing to bear in mind is it wasn't inevitable. The Austrians, in particular, did not wish to see Napoleon overthrown. They wished to see him limited, but not overthrown. And Napoleon repeatedly, um, as it were, snubs attempts to uh, produce peace. Um, um, and uh, 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 rejects um, conciliatory terms. So, in, in in the grand strategic terms, no Napoleon um, opts for continued conflict, and that helps to, in particular, anger Metternich, who uh, the ch- Austrian Chancellor, who does not really want to ally with the Russians and the Prussians, and does not really want to fight um, so that the war could end on terms that are going to suit the British. Um, And I think that's a terrible failure on uh, Napoleon's part. Um, I mean, France itself also is running out of support for him. As I've already argued, the support was always a bit conditional, but you see... um, in 1813 and even more 1814 and even more 1815, a disinclination to to serve. You see fewer people coming forward in the conscript classes. Uh, These are major problems for Napoleon. Um, And obviously pushed back onto the defensive, um, he also does not find it um, so possible to raise Uh, supplies by extorting them from areas that he's conquered or from allies
0: and napoleon's failure to build on the leads of you know separating the different war aims of his opponents failing to take uh pick up um semi-olive branches offered particularly from austria who as you say would have been prepared to keep him in power albeit a constrained power Uh, this this failure to to make the most of his um, remaining options, just comes from a, a, a pig-headedness, or what What was he calculating?
1: Well, I think a lot of it is uh, pig-headedness. I mean, I think he is hoping, as he hopes again in 1815, um, that the alliance, and indeed as Hitler does in 1945 and 44, hoping that the alliance against him... Uh, will collapse but i my own view is that he was instinctively unwilling to accept limits or half measures that that represents a loss of touch with reality um i would say that you know he has an inherent optimism a temperamental opportunism Um, And that's, in effect, often seen in an operational duplicity, but it's no substitute for strategy. There's neither pragmatism there nor rationality. So uh, it's not new to Napoleon as a result at this stage. It's been a consistent characteristic. But, um, you know, it becomes more serious in the context that he himself has created by forcing Russia into war with him
0: so he's forced to abdicate it in 1814 sent to elba famously escapes from elba and we have the the extraordinary denouement of 1815 with the 100 days campaign um i mean this i mean it's extraordinary um extraordinary campaign i mean a, a real kind of um gambler's throw of the dice or could it have turned out well for him
1: well um you know i've got to declare a, an interest there i've Published a book on the on Waterloo, which includes a discussion of strategy. I don't think it could have turned out well for him. Um, I think that even if he had been more successful in Belgium, uh, I think the weight of the forces. Uh, coming in from on his eastern frontier, the Austrians and the Russians, um, was too great. I think, I mean, it's a classic example of his strategy of risk, expediency, and self belief. Um, what he was trying to do, of course, is to engage in sequential victory, you know, rather like German tried again in 1914 15 and tried again in 1940 41. Um, uh, but the uh, the room for manoeuvre he has is limited, his support within France is limited, he has united uh, the other powers against him. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that before he returned from Elba, relations between, on the one hand, Russia and Prussia, and on the other hand, Austria, backed up by uh, Louis XVIII of France and by Britain over the fate of Saxony, was so dire that Russia and Prussia and Austria had been thinking of fighting each other. That all goes out the window as soon as the news arrives at the Congress of Vienna that um, Napoleon's back, they all resolve to put aside their differences, to uh, raise an enormous force and to deal with him. And uh, you know, if you look at Napoleon's belief uh, that he could peel off the alliance against him, it's based on a real lack of reality. You know, the, the notion that the Whigs in Britain are uh, were going to succeed in overthrowing the government of the Earl of Liverpool is just a fantasy.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, my, my last question is as much a, a political one as a as a military one. Um, as the Napoleonic Wars end in 1815 with, with um, the, the, the final defeat at Waterloo, Western Europe then has um, d- decades of, of peace, a much greater level of peace than it's known uh, for um, uh, many of the previous centuries. Uh, is that period of peace attributable to the Napoleonic Wars or, or to, to, to other factors? I suppose I'm asking was, was Europe so exhausted by the Napoleonic Wars it didn't want to? uh repeat anything on that scale again or actually um, there there could easily have been a succession of other wars and and the Napoleonic Wars it didn't really have have a a legacy of, of relative peace in the decades that followed
1: Hmm, that's interesting i mean there are in fact you know if you look at my book on 19th century warfare there are in fact conflicts i mean um in uh in italy in uh in belgium in spain uh, there are conflicts uh in the 1820s uh, and 30s um you're right they're not on the scale of the french revolution in napoleonic wars um but I wouldn't put it quite like that. And again, I'm very chary of seeing an inevitability. And it's worth looking back and saying that, okay, Britain, France, Spain fought during the war of American independence, but they didn't fight on the European uh, mainland, apart from a siege of Gibraltar. Um, There'd been no significant conflict uh, in Western Europe, um uh, between 1763 and the outbreak of the French Revolutionary Wars. So that's prior to the French Revolutionary Wars. Um, I, would, I would be a bit loath to make a uh an overarching interpretation like that. Um I would say that um the major powers both prior to 1792, and after 1815, are able to conduct international relations and their own foreign policies without going in for a large scale conflict. Uh, I do not think that's because they couldn't have afforded such a conflict. I think actually, in some respects, it's because uh, they were um run by politicians who could appreciate including obviously preeminently rulers who could appreciate the need for restraint and could understand as napoleon never could understand the difference between being irritated having interests to pursue and risking war and Napoleon could never do that, but obviously Napoleon, in my view, was a really very third-rate figure.
0: Well, um, on that, Professor Jeremy Black has written extensively on the period of the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution Wars. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.